You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called a portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku. Today is November 22nd, 2021. And on today's episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about computer share over stock and Chegg. And then I'll recap my soccer and football picks over the weekend and give my upcoming slate for basketball and the UEFA Champions League. And then I'll be wrapping up the episode with a little teaching moment on different kinds of investing methods. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, apes and retail investors that think alike. Before I give a description on computer share, overstock, and Chegg, and why I might add them into my portfolio, I want to give everyone a quick update. So not much has changed from Friday to Sunday, but the crypto and the gambling segment have changed a little bit. The crypto segment has gone to a valuation of about $230, and then the gambling account went up to $379 because of my winning bets. Well... I don't know if winning can really be the word for it, but I did get lucky over the weekend and got a small amount of profit in return. Nonetheless, from the last portfolio update, which was just about three days ago, I've gained about $15. So I gained about 1.5%. Not bad. It's almost like your regular S&P 500 index on a regular day. But I did it over the weekend with gambling. So by looking at my portfolio, another thing I noticed right off the bat is that I've got about $297 in cash floating around for my securities and about $100 in cash floating around for the cryptos. So this means I still can play around with some money. For this portfolio, however, I'm not entirely sure which stock to buy yet. I have my eye on three of them, and I've already mentioned them. And what I'm going to be doing today is going over a little description of them each and explaining why I might look into this stock. By Wednesday, I will have looked at the financial statements for all of these companies, and then I'll make a valuation for this portfolio what I should buy. And remember, since some of these stocks vary in the price, I want to make sure that the stock I'm buying has room and potential to grow further than what it's currently valued at right now. And the first stock I wanted to talk about was actually ComputerShare. I'm not sure if you've heard of this name before circulating around. But if you've been on Reddit and you're following this ape community at all, trust me, I'm pretty sure you've heard of ComputerShare. Or if you haven't, you've heard of something called direct registering. And that is what ComputerShare is. They're a transfer agent that directly registers your shares. They offer shareholders who own stock in certain companies through a broker or an intermediary the option to directly register their own shares under their name. That means taking the shares out of the DTS, which is the Depository Trust Company, and electronically transferring the shares directly into your name. 
This is what ComputerShare does. They do all this mundane work behind the scenes for you, and essentially they act as a broker. You can also buy stock off of them, but for now, since they're not as well known as the Fidelities, Chase Morgans, and TD Ameritrades of the world, they still have commission fees for trading. And trading directly off of ComputerShare might be a little bit complex because you have to do it through their investing center affiliate. You see, ComputerShare isn't like a standard broker that you think of. They actually take these shares and register it under your name. You typically would do this for the purpose if you're holding the shares for a long-term position. Because in reality, what you're doing behind the scenes is you're getting your stock certificate and you're putting it in your name electronically. So on the off chance that anything would ever come about in the future, you know exactly where your shares are. Aside from offering stock registration, they also offer technical services for exchanges and they have investor services along with employee share plans. What ComputerShare agents are known most for is their excellent customer service and the expertise in the fields that they provide. So in my book, these guys are just like another broker, and on top of it, they offer you the chance to register your shares directly. Now in my opinion, if they grow to become a larger e-commerce trading platform or a player in the future, this amount of volume will actually enable them to not offer the commission trading. And then by doing so, they would be able to compete with the likes of Fidelity, Chase, TD Ameritrade, or any other broker that offers this commission-free trading. But that's getting way ahead of myself. I'm just speaking about something that hasn't happened yet. But it's a good thing to buy it, if that's what the future holds. Now I'm hoping that you understand a little bit more about what ComputerShare is as a company and the services they have to offer. So let's go back on the history they've had and see how the slow growth has eventually led them to become a dominant player in the field. They were created in 1978 in Melbourne, Australia. So they're a foreign stock. It wasn't until 1997 that they started expanding their businesses into some bigger regions. Until then, they were doing small overseas projects and building. Steady growth. I love it. And in 1997, they were able to expand their business practices to the New Zealand, UK, and Royal Bank of Scotland markets. So now they were serving these three areas along with the Australian markets. From 1997 to 2004, they expanded the market connections to Hong Kong, Russia, India, and some other eastern areas around there. And then in 2006, they were able to make it here to North America by buying out a trading station in Canada. And some of the most recent news I've got up to date is that March 23rd of this year, they bought out Wells Fargo's corporate trust for $750 million. Not that the money matters, but it's big to see that they're investing in a U.S. bank, especially in the midst of all this uncertainty and COVID talk. Which in my opinion, and the experienced traders will tell you, whenever there's uncertainty in the air, that's one of the best times to buy. Because when there's certainty in the air, everyone wants to buy. And you don't want to buy when everyone's at the market trying to get the same loaf of bread. Now remember how I stated earlier that this was a foreign stock? That means if you actually want to buy the real foreign stock, you have to pay a $50 transaction fee every trade you make. Or you can buy the ADR version of the stock, which is just an American depository receipt. And an American depository receipt is a negotiable certificate issued by a U.S. depository bank that represents the foreign shares. This essentially just lets you trade foreign shares if a broker is able to create an ADR. I've looked into it and I don't believe that you actually are holding the physical shares of the foreign company, but you're holding a representation of it. On a personal level, I've put about a grand into the foreign stock 
and the ADR because I'm actually running a personal experiment to see what the true difference is. I'll let you know on this podcast if I find any, but as of now there isn't. I am waiting for one of the first dividend payments to see if that actually has a huge difference or not. But for now, the only difference is the ticker symbol. The ticker symbol for the ADR is CSMQY, and the ticker symbol for the foreign and the actual stock in Australia is CSMQF. Now, if you were to purchase the CMSQF one, I would advise that you do it in bulk prices, because for every trade you have, you're going to be charged $50 no matter what. So I don't see why you wouldn't just buy it in bulk. With the ADR version, you can actually day trade that or flip it if you want, because you're not going to be charged commission. You're actually trading it through an American depository system. So it's viewed as an American stock, even though it's a foreign company. It's a little confusing, but that's just how finance works. Before moving on to Overstock, another reason I might like to add ComputerShare to this portfolio is because its price point is pretty low, especially for this portfolio. It's about a $13 to $14 stock, which means I could easily buy at least 10 shares of it and hold on, and then that would actually make a significant increase if this thing goes up in time. But I won't be making any decisions yet because I'm going to give everyone a description on these three stocks and I'm going to give all three an opportunity by looking into the financial statements. After looking into the sum of the financial statements and looking at some of the financial leaders that are behind this company, I'll be making a decision for the portfolio into which stock I should be buying next. So, let's move on to Overstock. Overstock is an e-commerce company that primarily provide home goods, anywhere from couches to kitchen appliances and dishwashers, laundries, things like that. On top of that, they also provide advertising on their company and help with advertising for companies. And one of the biggest things that they've been doing recently is they've been focusing on the development and management of financial applications on blockchain technology. Which if you remember from my earlier podcasts, whenever the word blockchain is used, crypto is attached right next to it. Like peanut butter and jelly, baby. They go well together. Now typically whenever I look for a stock, I like to try and find as many variables or as many things that I like about the company. And it can range from anything as serious to how much debt do they own compared to their assets, what are their income statements look like, how much earnings do they get, to something as simple as I just like the way their stock ticker sounds, or they've got this one little key factor that stands out to me. For overstock, they've got this one little factor that stands out to me. They were founded in 1997, which is when I was born, and they're headquartered in Midvale, Utah. I don't care about Utah, I just care about the fact that they were started when I was born. I think that's pretty neat, and because of that, they're on my radar. Or, that's one small little reason they're on my radar. Another reason they're on my radar is because they blew up last year. And not only did they blow up, they blew up by eating the shorts that bet against them. Literally said, F you. Yeah, I know, last podcast I was able to actually say the word, but this time I'm able to control myself. This was a stock that for a long time traded around the $10 to $20 range. Sound familiar? And then they issued an NFT dividend on the record date, April 27th, and they paid it on May 19, 2021. Between July 31st and August 28th of 2021, of course, this stock hit an all-time high of $128.50. Why? Well, well, I'll go over a quick article and description for why there were certain shorts who do what shorts do best, cry when things don't go their way. There were some short sellers that literally sued Overstock 
over the issuance of this NFT dividend. They claimed that they were issuing this NFT dividend to inflate the price of their stock. But in all reality, they were just mad because they didn't account that in their little formula. And when Overstock issued this NFT dividend, a 10 to 1 crypto payment dividend, which I haven't looked into much, so I can't really explain that, other than for every one share they get 10 of whatever. Well, this caused the shorts to go in a flurry, and anyone who most likely had a short position closed within that quarter. And it's clear that they closed because when the payment date was made, May 19, 2021, that's the last time that Overstock was at its lowest point, which was about the $11 range. By the end of that month, it hit about 20. And since then, up until about mid-August, it reached its all-time high of $128. So this thing was moving up and up and up as the shorts were closing out their positions. And these guys were crying because they sued Overstock for it. And Overstock won because the judge said, F you. Not really, but he just dismissed their case, basically saying they're just little babies throwing a temper tantrum right now. So I'll quickly read over one paragraph that I found really funny in this Utah business article. And the business article is titled, Overstock's Digital Dividend Ruling Doesn't Mean Anything About NFTs. Which if you're an NFT investor, that is FUD. Clear fear, uncertainty, and doubt. If you ever hear FUD, just clog your ears and go la 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 la. But I'm not an NFT investor yet. So let me hop right into the reading. And if you're not really a fan of reading, you can maybe skip ahead 30 seconds. But I think this is worth a listen. Short sellers like Mangrove enter into contracts where they borrow stock from a brokerage and sell it when they think the stock's price is at a high point. The short seller is then contractually required to buy that stock back in the future and return it to the brokerage. Derivatives. If companies like Mangrove buy the stock back when the price is lower than when they bought it, they earn a profit. If the stock price is higher when they bought it, the short seller loses their shirt. Remember that collateral? they lose their house. So what does this have to do with the digital dividends? Short sellers are also obligated to pay any dividend issued during their contract to the brokerage firm. If the short seller can't do so for whatever reason, they must cover it by buying back more of the stock on the market. In Overstock's case, companies like Mangrove who shorted Overstock were required to cover their digital dividend. And since that dividend was on T0, which is a blockchain platform, the dividend was inaccessible for six months, and the short sellers were forced to buy overstock shares on the NASDAQ to cover their position. Demand for the stock became artificially high, which caused the stock price to become artificially inflated. The short sellers still had to buy the shares, however, and lots of shirts were lost. So, Mangrove was upset at this because they had to buy back all of these shares, and they owned a huge large short position. And you know why the judge threw out this case immediately? because Mangrove wasn't able to prove that Overstock even committed fraud in the first place. So these guys were just a bunch of big babies that placed a large bet that the company Overstock was going to go down in the midst of a pandemic, and they said, watch this 10 to 1 NFT dividend. Suck on my nuts. And their stock blew up from 20 to 120, and now it's trading above $100. Which if you ask me, is that inflated? No, because now maybe people are going to realize the true value of Overstock. Because when companies get overshorted like this, their value goes down because their shares get diluted. And aside from this stock sounding very, 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 very extremely familiar with another certain stock that I already have in this portfolio, I'm also interested in the fact that they're an e-commerce company looking into blockchain technology. They're not having someone else do it for them. 
they're getting their hands dirty. And if they can find a way to integrate blockchain technology into e-commerce, I think they have huge potential. And you could turn this $100 and just treat them like an Amazon stock at this point. So ask yourself this, would you buy Amazon if it was $100? If your answer is yes, then maybe look into overstock. I'm not saying do it because it's Amazon. I'm saying look into it and do your own due diligence. I'll do it by Wednesday for you if you don't want to, and I'll make a decision for this portfolio. But any stock I give out here, feel free to take its pick. If you like what I say on this podcast of a certain stock, make your own decision for yourself. Maybe look a little bit more into it before you buy. But if you find out that you're doing just fine listening to me and making stock picks, by all means, I'm happy you're winning. So now let me move on to the last stock I wanted to talk about. And then by Wednesday, I'll be looking into all three of these. And based off of the price that the stock is at, and the financial statement, and some of my gut feeling and intuition, I'll make some plays. But before that, let's get a quick little description on Chegg. So Chegg is an online company that essentially offers you cheat sheets to your homework. They also provide you tutors and assistance to help you with your homework. But I know from experience, and I know from a majority of the users, they use this to help with their homework problems. More specifically, college complex word problems, lab studies, anything that's super thought out and well evaluated. I've even used it on some exams. So come find me teachers if you want to give me that grade again. But aside from being used as a cheating source by myself, I won't speak for anyone else, but I've seen it. Um, they were started in 2005 of July and headquartered in Santa Clara, California. So it's good to know that if we invest in this company, at least for me, it'll be close to home. Where I was raised, of course. If I find a Romanian stock, trust me, we're adding it straight to this portfolio doing zero research. But back to Chegg. The reason I might want to start investing in this company is because of the sheer falldown they've had. They were valued at about $113 in February of this year. Right now, as I'm looking at the ticker price, it's $26.50. They fell off a cliff at the end of October because after their earnings call, the CEO came out and said that the education industry is experiencing a huge slowdown due to this coronavirus. Okay, and that doesn't explain them going from $113 in February to being valued at $26 in November. Regardless, if this thing goes up, and like I've said, this is a broken fallacy you can't really rely upon. Not all stocks that come down must go up. But this is really one I think will go up. Especially in the future. Are you kidding me? Do you know how big Chegg is? Chegg's been a big predominant player in the electronic services for school, for the education industry. And they're experiencing a huge slowdown now because of the COVID crisis. Ask yourself this. If you think COVID is going to be here forever for the rest of your life, and the world won't recover over this, do not invest in Chegg. But if you think the world will snap out of it in at least five years, I think Chegg is a buy. I think it's at a huge discount right now. And I don't have a personal play in it yet, but trust me, after this week, regardless if I add it to this portfolio or not, I'll most likely add it as a personal play. And if I choose to add it as a personal play, I'll disclose that info here too. But to me, it's just mind-boggling. This thing went from $100 and in 9 months, bam, it's $25. I've seen the stock fall from $60 to $30 before, and I've bought it. The stock ticker was ARCT. This was one of my first biggest winners. 
I did zero research on it. I just saw that the ticker fell from 60 to $30 and I put 10 shares in, so I got $300 worth. Within the next month and a half, the ticker blew up to $120. I was only expecting it to reach back its initial $60. Why I didn't sell? I don't know, I guess I just had a weird gut feeling and it was fun waking up every single day seeing if I was up $100 or $200 in my account, which up to that point was huge. My volatility swings were only about $30 to $40 up until that point. It was during that time period that I started learning how to look for certain stocks. And now I'm hoping I can bring that same luck and skill to this podcast. I like to think of it as skill, but I'm not going to tout myself that much. I know most of my trades are luck, but you only need to hit a few of them. And that's what I'm trying to prove. So now I hope you know a little bit more about computer share, overstock, and Chegg. And I'm guessing you already knew about Chegg, maybe not about them as a stock, but as a company. I'm assuming you didn't know too much about computer share or overstock, so I'm hoping to have at least shed some light on those companies for you. And my upcoming homework for this Wednesday will be to look into the financial statements and some of the managers and leaders of these companies. I'll lay out the list and I'll give out the information on Wednesday. After giving out all of the information I have found, I'm going to be making a play. Now the stock market's going to be closed this upcoming Thursday because we all have something to be thankful for. And make sure you remember what you're truly thankful for. Well everyone, that's going to be concluding today's investing segment. And until next time, ape out. Welcome back my degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this part of the sports segment. Whether you follow my picks or go against them, I hope you're making money regardless. For this upcoming sports segment, I'm going to be going over the soccer round robin I had over the weekend and then the two slates I had for the NFL. I also will go over the 10 pick NFL teaser that I created on Wednesday that did not hit because we had some teams this Sunday that got upset. So without wasting anyone's more time, let's jump straight into it because all we really care about are the picks. So the soccer round robin I created within mixed teams from the Bundesliga, the La Liga, and the Premier League went 5 for 8. I had Chelsea to win, and they did. I had Liverpool to win by at least 2, and they did. I had Borussia Dortmund to win by 2, and unfortunately they only won by 1. I had SC Freiburg to win, and they actually lost. I had Real Madrid to win by 2, and they did. I had Real Sociedad straight up to win, and they actually tied 0-0. I had Real Betis to win, and they did, and then I had Manchester City to win, and they did as well. So by risking $28 on this round robin, I came out on top with $11.40 profit. Now moving on to the first NFL slate I had, I'll be going over the one I created for against the spreads. This one actually didn't do so hot, and I wound up losing some money. But I had the Bills to win by 7, and they got upset. I had the Ravens to win by 5, and they just won by a field goal. I had the Eagles to win by 3, and luckily... My team was able to blow out the Saints. I had the Titans to win by 11, and boy oh boy did they just wind up straight up losing to the Texans. The Packers were supposed to win by 2, and they lost. The Bengals actually covered, and they won by at least more than 2. I had the Chiefs to win by at least 3, and they did. And then I had the Washington football team to cover their spread, and they straight up won. By risking $28 on this, I only got back $22.16, so I lost about $5.84 on this bet. Still green for the day, even though I'm not doing too hot with my picks. I went 5 for 8 with the soccer leagues, 
and for the against the spreads, I went 4 for 8. But are you ready to hear the next NFL slate? Because I did worse with my picks, and I still wound up in the green. So for my underdog slate, like I told you guys, any given Sunday, baby. Which is why I make an underdog slate, and I will continue to do so until there are no more upsets. Until the word upset doesn't exist. Because this proves that I can go 3 for 8 with my picks and still make some money. Which is why one day, I can't wait to go 8 for 8. But until then, we keep praying. So who helped us out in our underdogs pick? Well, the Washington football team, the Houston Texans, and the Colts all helped us out. Because those were the only three that won from my slate. I had the Bears, the Saints, the Jets, the Lions, and the Jags. Unfortunately, they all lost. The Lions, the Jets, and the Bears were actually really close. And had those games been flipped the other way, this account would have seen tremendous gains, let me tell you. But by risking $28 on this, I actually netted $10.33 back. Not bad for only going 3 for 8 with my picks. And whether I have a good day in gambling or a bad day, I'm going to look forward to the next day to continue to make more bets. Because the train keeps moving on. We don't stop this bus until it gets stopped by something else. And I ain't stopping for no one. So I've done my due diligence at looking at today's games and tomorrow's sports games. From all the games compiled, I'm going to stick again to just soccer, football, and basketball. For today, it's just going to be basketball and football. But tomorrow, the UEFA's Champion League continues, and it's match day 5 of 6. So it's getting near the end of the group stages, and soon the round of 16s will start. And as a little cherry on top, I'm going to be adding a four-team parlay tomorrow that revolves all around the four NBA games. So now that I've lathered you up and you know what you're in for, let's get into the picks. For my round robin today, in the NBA, I'm going to have the Sixers to cover the spread against the Kings, the Bulls to cover their spread against the Pacers, and the Bucks to cover their spread against the Magic. For college hoops, I'm going to have Kentucky to cover their spread against Albany, I like Illinois to cover their spread against Cincinnati. I like UCLA to cover theirs against Bellemar. And then to end the college slate, I'm going to have Gonzaga to cover their spread against Central Michigan. That leaves us with seven selections, and if you know me, I like to have eight picks. So I'm going to be going over to Monday Night Football, and I'm going to be picking the Tampa Bay Bucks to cover the spread against the Giants. I'm not going to overthink this one. I think Tom Brady is going to have something to prove, especially after the NFL weekend we had this week where there were so many uncertain teams. He's going to want to show to the primetime TV that the Bucks are true contenders and they're ready to take on anyone. At least that's what I'm hoping for because I'm going to be picking them to win by 11. So for that round robin, just like on every other one, I'll be placing a $1 wager for it, making it 28 total dollars because of the 28 parlays it creates. So let me move on now to tomorrow's round robin. I like to call it the UEFA Champions League round robin. Match day 5 of 6. Now that's super lame, but let me just get straight into it. When I'm making these picks because the lines aren't up right now, I'll typically pick the team to cover the spread unless the money line gives you better odds. It's super wonky, and I've seen instances where the spread is minus 0.5, which means the team has to win by 1, and the odds for the money line are slightly better. What this means is, let's say that the odds for a team to win by negative 0.5 is plus 100, their money line could be plus 105. So that means I'm making an extra 5 cents. 
and both odds are the same exact thing. Because in soccer, if you win by one goal, you win your money line bet. And if you cover a spread of negative 0.5, that means you have to win by one goal. So, now that you know that, whenever you're placing bets for soccer, if I ever say that I'm going to pick against the spread, and then I tell you later on it was a money line bet, it's because the spread was probably negative 0.5. So now that you know that, let me get straight into my picks. For tomorrow, I like Bayern Munich to cover their spread against Dynamo. Not only did they lose on Friday to a team that they're way better than, I think they're going to be mad about it and they're going to come out firing. So whatever their spread's set at, I think they can cover it. Now this next game I'm a little uneasy on, but I'm going to stick with them because they've won me some decent amount of money in the past, so I'm going to stick with them. Manchester United to cover their spread against Villarreal. If I'm being honest, my gut is telling me a tie here, but I don't like to bet on draws, unless I'm going to bet on every single match to go draw, because you just can never tell which games are going to be a tie. Moving on to the third game, I like Chelsea to cover against Juventus. The only reason because these are both evenly matched teams is because Chelsea is at home. My fourth game I'm a little uneasy on this is Barcelona to cover is Barcelona to win against Benfica. Why? Barcelona's been pretty bad. And if you haven't been following soccer lately, they don't have Messi anymore. As a matter of fact, they almost have no one. But if Barcelona is to win this game, I see them winning 1-0. So if you do want to place a bet that way, place that too. But I'm going to pick them to cover the spread which unfortunately is going to probably be something like get them to win by two. Moving on to the next game, I like Wolfsburg to cover their spread against Avila. And then I know I just said I don't like to pick draws, but against Malmo and Zeni, which are two awful teams in their group stages, I think they're going to find a way to draw. If not, then I guess that's on me for not picking a side. Then the seventh game of that day is going to be Lilly vs. RB Salzburg. And I like RB Salzburg to cover their spread. And then our final game is going to be Atalanta against Young Boys. I like Atalanta to cover their spread against this because they're in third place right now and they have a chance to fight for second. In soccer, if you're unaware, in these group stages, the top two teams move on. And since we're in match day five of six, we're getting really close to the end. So any team that's in third place and has a chance is probably going to be pushing really hard. And Atalanta is pretty good. And the Young Boys, sorry to diss on them, but they're not the best team. And now watch them win. So a real quick recap on that one, in case I talked way too much during it, is I like Bayern, Manchester United, Chelsea, Barcelona, Wolfsburg, RB Salzburg, Atalanta, and in that one game against Malmo and Zenit, I like a draw. That's going to be my round robin pick for it. And like the other one, I'm going to place a $1 bet, which will be 28 total dollars risked. Now I said I'm going to have a 14 parlay, and it's going to be on the NBA slate for Tuesday night. I like the Heat, the Knicks, the Nuggets, and the Clippers to all cover their spreads at whatever they're set. I'm going to be putting a $5 bet on this, and it's going to be a four-team parlay. So this is not going to be like a round robin. Instead, I'm going to need all four of these to happen if I want to win the bet. So, whether you follow or fade me with these picks, I hope you win some money, and I'll be here to recap them on Wednesday. And until next time, ape out.
Hello class. For today's lesson, since it's a Monday, it's going to be a nice and easy one. Nothing super dense like last week's derivatives market and nothing super complicated. We're going to be talking about some investing methods and styles. This lesson is more for anyone that's starting to get interested in investing, but you're not really sure how to start. Like you want to get into it and you want to put your money in a brokerage account, but you don't really know any investing strategies and you don't really know anything else other than what I've told you so far, well then this lesson's for you. Because this lesson is one that I learned after reading Peter Lynch's first book. Now before I get into the types of stocks and how you can start to categorize stocks, I'm gonna get into the mindset of actually investing in the market because there are some mindsets you can have. For example, you can be someone who wants to time the market, you can be someone who wants to passively invest in the market, and then you can be someone who's smart enough to value the market and understand the market to a point where you know what's undervalued and what's overvalued. I'm not there yet, but I'm on my journey and I'll let you know every step of the way and hopefully you can see me reach my destination or I guess it'd be considered hearing it. So in my eyes, there are four true ways you can invest in the market. You can invest through dollar costing average, you can do the value averaging, you can try to time the market, or you can just not invest in the market. So those are the four options I'll give out. Now, what dollar costing average is, it's when you buy a certain amount of stock, or let's say an index, at regular intervals, and you have a fixed amount that you spend each time. So what I'm doing by adding $100 to this portfolio at the end of every month that can be viewed as dollar costing average in terms of how much money I'm putting in. Now not spending that much money in a certain stock at the end of every month, that would be true dollar costing average. But as you can see, I'm just using some concepts from these ideas to build around my portfolio. I'm hoping as I explain these ideas, you start seeing how I build my portfolio around. An example of what the dollar costing average would look like in a smart way would be if someone were to invest $100 every single month into the S&P 500 for 10 years. If that was your strategy, you would be ensuing the dollar costing average strategy. And if you did that, I can tell you with certainty while looking back at history and kind of guessing the future that you would be in good hands. What this dollar costing average enables an investor to do is you can passively invest. And overall in the long run, you're going to be average investors aside from those that do value investing or invest immediately. And by investing immediately, I mean those that start around age 18. If we were to compare people that invest early by later ages, you've already heard enough stories of how the earlier you invest, the better it is for you in the long run. Well, those people and value investors are the only ones that have statistically proven to beat this dollar costing average method. So if you listen to this podcast and you really want to get in the market, but you don't want to trust me with stock picks, or you don't even want to trust individual companies for that matter of fact, invest in an index. The index I've described is a perfect starter, the S&P 500. Because you're investing in 500 companies, the chances of all 500 going bankrupt within the same month, let alone the same year, or the same business cycle is really slim. And the S&P 500 is going to be able to adjust quicker before it does. So just know that your money won't disappear all at once overnight. Where if you use the dollar costing average on penny stocks, I'm not going to tell you you're going to have fantastic returns because you might lose all of your money. 
but if you use this method, I can tell you that you don't really have to pay too much attention to the market because you know that no matter what the price is, you're putting in a fixed amount and you're expecting a greater return in the long run. Now if you wanted to use a more sophisticated process than dollar costing average because you think it's dumb if you spend a fixed amount all the time, you can use something called value averaging, which means you invest more when the share price falls below a certain price and you invest less when it goes above a certain share price. A good example of this would be if you did the same thing where you put $100 a month into an account and let's say we choose the S&P 500 again and you invest in that for 10 years. But this time, we'll place a contingency. If the S&P 500 is above a certain price, point X let's call it, we put 20% of our income towards it. But if it falls below this X point, then we put 80% of our buying power within this stock. So what this means now, let's say the S&P 500 is at 2000 and I'm just making numbers up. If I did all of my value investor research, I would figure out a price point that I'm comfortable with buying the S&P 500 at. Let's say that I think the S&P 500 is supposed to be valued at 2200 and now it's 2000 I would be willing to put 80% of my money into the S&P 500. Now in four months, let's say this shoots all the way up to 2500 and I still think it's only worth 2200 I'm only going to be putting 20% of my money in because this is value averaging. What this will do, even though I'm still buying the stock at a higher price in lower quantities, my average will still stay low. And if the stock tends to fall, I just double down or buy more because I'm averaging down, which is value averaging. That's what I did with GameStop. When I first bought around 350 and 400, I eventually averaged down. And now my average is 165. Because could you imagine if I only had 10 shares at an average cost of 300? That doesn't sound nice. But having 45 shares at an average cost of 165 sounds like a value investor move for me. So now if you didn't want to follow any of these methods, the dollar costing average or the value averaging, which I recommend the dollar costing average if you're just unsure of where to start at, then what you would do is you would either fall into two categories. You're either someone that's trying to time the market which I'm going to let you know right now, you don't know what you're doing, or you're going to be the lame person who sits on cash and watches it disappear slowly and surely year over year. But let me give you the example of the person that times the market. They hold on to their cash, and then when the stock market crashes, they go all in. Probably not all in, but they go all in to what they feel safe with. And then you've got the same person who just sits on cash because they believe the stock market is a gamble. Meanwhile, they don't believe it's a gamble to work for one company until 65 years old, making the same wage or barely increasing and losing at least 5% year over year, which soon with this transitory inflation is going to be 10 to 15% guaranteed. I'm willing to put money on that. Just make the bet with me. Because I don't really believe in timing the market or holding on to 100% cash unless we're clearly in a recessionary or depressionary period, which even then I would say don't hold 100%, maybe start flinging your money into the market because you can never time the bottom, I'm going to stick to just the dollar costing average and the value averaging. And now I'm going to talk about the types of stocks that you can apply these two methods to. Because if you can start categorizing stocks, you can start seeing a market in a different way. 
So what do I mean by types of stocks? Well, I'm talking about stocks that have labels like growth stock, dividend slash income stock, blue chips, value stocks, cyclical, and defensive. These are some of the common ones that Peter Lynch and many other investors and the investing community are very familiar with. Now, determining where you want to put each stock in each category is completely subjective and up to you. But overall, there's a consensus for which stocks fit in which categories. And some of them can fit in multiple ones as well. So for growth stocks, what are these? Well, these are typically large market cap stocks that have some risk, but are considered to be the big fish, quote unquote. And they normally have room for a lot of sales growth and earnings per shares growth. By having a company like this, they normally also outperform the S&P 500 year over year. They can also tend to fall off once they've reached the end of their company life cycle. And you never really know when that is because there can be a lot of factors to it. At one point, the railroad industry was a growth industry. And now look at it. It's probably a penny stock, almost all of them. And another thing with most of these growth stocks is normally they don't pay out a dividend because they reinvest their earnings in the company to obviously attempt to grow. Some examples of these growth stocks are Walmart, Target, Amazon. Those are just a few that I can think off the top of my head. But you get the idea. They're large companies that almost everyone knows about. The quote-unquote big fish that are almost too big to fail. So the next type of stock I want to talk about are the blue chippers. These ones are supposed to be quote-unquote very predictable and steady growth stocks. They're also considered high value and just like the growth stocks, they have large market caps. But the primary difference with this is that you can tell what their earnings are because they don't go from one quarter to quarter being down 10% and then up 25%. They slowly either grow or they maintain the same or they have a moat in the economy that their business will sustain. And a moat is something special about a business. One example of a moat I'll give you that I can think off the top of my head is McDonald's. You might not think of it, but McDonald's owns the land on all of the properties they have. The reason is because they have so much money now, obviously, as a business. But whenever a franchisee starts, they eventually work ways to buy that land around them. So the moat with McDonald's is they're a real estate giant. Because if they own the land, if these franchisees eventually go out of business, they can still sell the land that that McDonald's was located on. And that's all revenue that goes to McDonald's. That's a moat, ladies and gentlemen. And the blue chippers are just as subjective as growth. Because something that's a blue chip can be considered a growth company. You can consider Walmart to be a blue chip company because they're very predictable. And you can also consider Home Depot a blue chip company. But then 2020 happened with COVID and they became unpredictable. So it's really hard to understand what a blue chip company is. But some famous stock ticker names are from the likes of Apple, Walmart, Microsoft, and even Pfizer. But at any moment, those stocks can fall off. And when they do, they're no longer going to be considered blue chips because they won't be predictable. They won't have the steady growth and they might be done with their company's life cycle. The next type of stock I want to talk about is a dividend slash income stock. This is actually the first way I intended to invest in stocks. The first couple stock purchases I made all had dividend payouts. The reason? I was planning on eventually buying enough stock to where the dividend payout would let me buy a free share in the future. And at some point, 
you can do this and actually start making a lot of money by just buying back shares off of your dividend payments. It's a pretty cool concept, but it takes a lot of time or a lot of capital to get this steam engine rolling. But once it gets going, you honestly probably would never have to spend another day reading an article if you wanted to. You could just live off of your dividends. But like I said, it takes a while to get going. And Warren Buffett is a huge proponent of this kind of investing. One thing that dividend investors really care mostly about isn't just the dividend yield that you get on the stock, it's how consistently the company actually pays out the dividend. Because as opposed to the growth in blue chip investors who want a high price, these stocks, most of the investors aren't looking at the price. Sure, it'd be nice to get a discount on it, but they're really caring about that dividend. So if you're buying a lot of shares and the company doesn't pay you out a dividend next quarter, you're gonna be really disappointed. So that's why it's important to look at which companies pay out a dividend and how consistently they have been. For example, Coca-Cola and 3M are some pretty good companies that pay out consistent dividends, especially Coca-Cola. If you wanna live off of just dividends, start off with the Coca-Cola company and then look into some other companies that pay out dividends the same and try and find some that have a lower share price while consistently still paying out dividends. And that's the biggest thing with this dividend investing. It's quite honestly just finding the company that's going to be able to stay alive and continue to pay you. And Coca-Cola is definitely a big enough one to do this. And they have been paying out dividends ever since I can remember. They've been paying out dividends since Warren Buffett's been a baby. So moving on to another type of stock. The two kinds of stocks that are essentially solar opposites are cyclical and defensive stocks. Cyclical ones are stocks that tend to follow business and market cycles and their performance is very closely tied to the economic well-being. So when the economy goes down, these cyclical stocks also tend to go down. Some examples of cyclical stocks are actually one that I hold in my portfolio, which is GameStop, but most of the stocks and companies that rely a lot on seasonal revenues are cyclical stocks. So if a company owns a ski resort, they're going to be cyclical in the winter time. And that's when investors are really going to be paying attention to their earnings reports. Whereas if you're a water slide company, no true investor is going to care how you perform in the winter. They want to know how you do in the summertime. So what are defensive stocks? Well, they're great regardless of how the economy is performing. And they're also a good option for when the economy isn't a downturn. On the other side of the spoon, these stocks are rather stable when everything else is making noise in the market. So in a way, this might be a good way to hedge if you're a little scared of a crash coming. But I think if you're scared of a crash coming, you should just hold on to your money or try the value averaging method. Some examples of these defensive stocks are the boring ones. Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Pfizer, Merck. Costco is actually not as boring, but they are a defensive stock. And if you think about it, why are they? Because when there's an economic downturn and supplies go through the roof, these guys buy everything in bulk. So they can start offloading bulky items into single items, and they start making profit off of that. And not only that, people are always going to need food and just basic need appliances, which is what Costco has to offer. And then for the last type of stock I'd like to describe are the value stocks. These are the stocks that everyone wants to find. These are the stocks that Bloomberg articles and all of these dumb subscription model services have you paying up to $5 a month 
just to tell you, buy this stock now while it's still low. What value stock investing is, is easier said than done. It's buying a stock at a lower share price than what it's worth. This is exactly what Warren Buffett does. You use true value investing by looking at all of the financial statements and by taking everything that is up to date, you create your own future foreseeing statements. And then you use this discounted cash flows model to predict how much money they'll be earning. Then after modeling out your inputs, you can get a rough estimate of what the share price should be. This sounds complicated, and trust me, it is, because I haven't even come close to there yet. Although I have a general idea of what you would need to do, there can be so many variables you can think of at any given moment that it can throw off your share price at once. So I'm not ready to mess with models yet until I know that I can truly understand what went behind the buildings of that model. But I hope you can see now that you can split certain stocks into more than just sectors. You can compare apples to apples, and then you can also compare apples to oranges. You can say this is a growth stock in the food industry, and this is a growth stock in the car industry, and this is a growth stock in the banking sector. So at the end of the day, you can start comparing different stocks for different reasons. And why would you do this? Well, because you're in charge of your portfolio. And if you don't have a lot of money and you're looking for growth stocks, you're not going to invest in an Amazon that's 3K if you have another growth stock on your list that's $50. It's just simple. And figuring out how to make stock picking a simpler process for you is going to help you in the long run. And it's going to help you see that it's not that challenging to do. If you can find out for yourself that you want to be a passive investor, or if you want to be someone that keeps up with the market so you can be a value average investor, then all you have to do is think of stocks as what type of stock is this. And if you can categorize what the type of stock is, then at least you know what you're getting yourself into as you buy that stock. And the more you think about these little nuances each day, the more you start seeing this apply in every business day matters. And remember that Peter Lynch has said this, as a retail investor, you have an ultimate secret weapon above Wall Street. You actually shop at these places. You actually seize what works and what doesn't. And sometimes, Wall Street just likes to play with money. And it can take weeks to months to even years before the true consensus comes out. So if you think a company is doing well because you shop there, see if they trade publicly. And if you like their financial statements, or if you don't know how to read it, send it to me and I'll figure it out for you. I'll put it on this podcast and I'll help you out. And then you can determine if you want to buy it. Remember, as a retail investor, you have more power than you give yourself. And I'm hoping that by sharing just simple thoughts and simple techniques that I use, along with a lot of guest picking and having fun in this market and swinging money around for learning experiences, I'm hoping that you get yourself in this market. And I'm hoping that you see the value in it. I want you to use the financial instrument that America has given you. And I'm here to try and make this financial instrument a little less complicated. Because it is one complicated motherfucker. And excuse my French. And I hope that for however simple today's lesson was, you at least are now starting to think about the market in a new way. If you haven't already because of this podcast, I hope this lesson was the one to do it for you. If not, I've still got some work to do. So if you've made it this far into the lesson, I just want to say thank you 
Love you, and until next time, ape out.